So we were introduced uh, to Vipassana practice, and many of you made that transition, and uh, I gave instructions on the first foundation of mindfulness uh, today, George. He elaborated on those instructions and also more specifically talked about the second foundation of mindfulness uh, in Pali Vedana, feelings or feeling tones. And so we have uh, this new practice of the four foundations of mindfulness or Vipassana meditation, insight meditation. George mentioned uh, that he likes the word pastures, four pastures. We sometimes hear the four establishments. I think the value of that term is it suggests that these are four places or locations that we establish mindfulness. These are also locations or places of insight. They're areas of uh, contemplation where we derive insight, understanding that leads to wisdom, which leads to liberating freedom, which is the absence or uh, the alleviation of suffering. These four foundations are pastures or establishments are also uh, simply categories of experience. One of the things that I've always appreciated in the Buddhist teachings uh, was, is uh, the simplicity of them. Life feels uh, complicated often, you know, we're very busy and we have many relationships, whether we identify as having a primary one or not. Or, you know, we have many relationships and uh, there are challenges, challenges in those relationships and we have to address our relationship to money and health. We seek good health and we don't always have good health. What are we going to do uh, for work and how are we going to satisfy our uh, creative tendencies? How are we going to make it all fit? How are we going to do it all? And so we feel busy. So there's a feeling sometimes of just the complexity of life, and I find it very refreshing to have these simple models. In a, in a way, the four foundations of mindfulness, these four establishments, these four contemplations, uh, do a good job of consolidating experience into four categories. In a sense, we can locate and we can track our entire mental and physical experience in these four places. So that's, uh, that's a teaching, if you will, not to take as truth, but to investigate on your own through this practice. Could, could that, I like the question, could that possibly be true? Given everything that I've experienced in my life, given all that's come up in almost a week of meditation, so many things have happened. 
is it possible that I could locate them in one of these pastures? If I'm having some kind of experience, can I place it in the body, in Vedana, in the mind? So these Buddhist uh, maps and models are ways of explaining what's really happening. They're ways of explaining what's really happening so that we can have the uh, insight into how things really work and so that we can see how this is different than our perceptions of them. This is really the core task of Buddhist practice. We talk a lot about the, the Four Noble Truths, or I like to frame the Four Noble Tasks. The idea that suffering is a inherent or natural part of life, that there's a cause of that. And also the good news that there is the alleviation or the end of that, and that there's a path or a way of doing that. And this Second Noble Truth, the cause, is tanha, craving. And so we talk about, we read, we hear our teachers explaining that the cause of suffering is tanha. But there's a truth less talked about underlying tanha craving, and that is in Pali, avijja, or uh, ignorance, or not knowing. This is not the, the kind of condemning or condescending ignorance in the way we use the word in the West, but rather I like better simply not knowing that we, that we just don't quite know how things work. That's not personal. It's karmic. It's the result of conditioning. It's the truth of being a human being. So we just, we just don't know how things work all the time. We know how some things work. But we don't know how everything works, and we don't know how some of the really important things work, and we don't, we don't really understand how our mind works completely. Uh, we all know how certain elements or aspects of parts of our mind work, uh, but we don't totally get it, in a way, and that's not personal. And the result of this, the truth of this, is that we have confusion and we have uh, different variations of suffering and sometimes we act unskillfully um, sometimes uh, other people's actions hurt us and and it makes a lot of sense because other people were unkind uh, sometimes people people's words or actions have a really big impact on us and it's and our response seems disproportionate in, in hindsight we look back and we realize with some humility, with some new perspective, with uh, a willingness to learn, we take ownership and we, we see something, we say, wow, maybe I wasn't even treated unkindly, maybe that person was even right. Uh, so we're willing, to, we're willing to look at ourselves and, 
and oh, you know, I made a mistake, or oh, I could do something differently. Um, if I had related to the situation differently, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have suffered. So this is confusion, this is not knowing, this is ignorance, this is avijja. It's, it's not that we don't know that 5 plus 5 equals 10. It's not, we're not ignorant if we don't know how complex engineering works or, you know, how to write a, a brilliant epic poem. We're not talking about that. That kind of uh, intelligence, that kind of knowing is, is all uh, relative anyway. So we're just talking about, do we know how to be okay most of the time? So we're talking about seeing how things really work and seeing how that is different from our perception of them, of things. So this is really beginning to understand um, ultimately how consciousness, how self, and how suffering arise, how they come into being, how they manifest, how they become, at least on the relative level, we would say, real. And also then, ultimately, if we're paying attention, if we're doing a paying attention practice, an awareness practice like mindfulness or insight meditation, we're also beginning to learn, beginning to see, beginning to understand how uh, they pass away. So we're, we're learning how consciousness um, how self, the me or the I, the suffering contained within the experience of me or I, how it rises, how it comes into being, how it shows up in our life. And importantly, also, how it goes away, how it passes. What's interesting is that... Um, the more we see this, and it is, it is a, I think, a matter of repetition. I think, um, I believe that there is a real possibility of what we just might call in ordinary language very big insights. And uh, um, these big insights might just happen and really in a very fundamental way change our level of understanding, might uh, shift this avijja. Um, quite significantly, but, but mostly, most of us are going to have these little, uh, these little mini insights that uh, grow and develop and, you know, um, in my experience there's a lot of repetition. Uh, I think if we really study the core Buddhist insights, and I'll, I'll mention a few of them um, this morning, but uh, if, we, if we did a, a close analysis of the core Buddhist insights, uh, you'll find the same simplicity I'm suggesting is evident in these teachings applies there as well. There actually are not very many. Actually, when we see the short list, we go, oh boy, you know, there's only that many, and I, and I, and I haven't really fully integrated them yet. And so we actually, we just, we just keep seeing over and over and over, and it's like, it's almost like, um, you know, it's just like cleaning our glasses. If you, if you, you know, if you wear glasses, they just get all fogged up, and you know, they get some dirt on them, and um, you know, some of the classic images: polishing a stone, right? All that. 
images that come from the the Eastern traditions, you know, polishing a stone. So it takes time, repetition. It's why we advocate uh, for daily sitting. It's why George teaches morning meditation to offer that support. It's it's why we as teachers sit, you know, one or two or three retreats a year, and we we offer each as teachers two, three, four retreats a year, so that you have that opportunity. So the more we understand this, the clearer we see, actually, that there's little we can control. The more we see this rising of consciousness, self, dukkha, and the passing away, we're really just seeing that we actually have, in a sense, in a way, we have very, very little control. Um, Things just seem to happen, don't they? Have you noticed how Sometimes you'll just realize that a thought arose, but you didn't choose it. There, there was not a function of decision that said, now I'm going to think about what I want for lunch. There may have been something that we could call somatic. Um, there could be attached to that something that we call hunger. And then at the level of mind, there could be, I wonder what they're making for lunch. And that this is sort of just happening all the time. You're meditating and um, there's an image. It's a, it's a 21-year-old, 22-year-old image. And you're, you're, you're a young person again. And something really lovely is happening or something really uh, scary is happening to you. And we call this a memory and it just... The image just showed up. Could you have avoided that? We're not uh, talking about um, creating a kind of peace and liberation that comes from uh, being able to control conditions in this way, uh, because we're never going to be able to. So the more we understand, the more we see the rising and the passing away, the clearer we see that there's little we can control. And uh, interestingly, and also I would say thankfully, the result is we understand we can change our relationship to anything and everything that arises. And as such, we can change the level of suffering we experience in our life. So this is also true. Once we see, once we see clearly what we are either doing or not doing, once we see, once we see clearly what we are doing or not doing to create or keep intact the conditions of suffering, we begin to respond differently. We begin to respond differently. And we notice, uh, we notice that things are getting easier. So this is a sign of change. This is a sign of transformation. So we become more skillful in our life. That's the result. We become, this is the word we use. We become more skillful. What does it mean to become more skillful? Well, we're not acting or responding uh, from the avidya side of the spectrum anymore. Um, there's, there's more knowing, there's, there's less 
ignorance, there's less not knowing. And so how can we think about this? On the one hand, um, we identify less with experience, period. We just, we just identify less with experience. Um, we take life less personally, that's what that means, we take life less personally. There is less a self, there is uh, less someone doing something right or wrong. This is so important. This is so important. There's less, there's less someone doing something right or wrong. There are experiences happening that are um, confusing or difficult, um, but there's... We've, we've, in a sense, we've given up some... We've decided that we would stop claiming experience as our own, if you will. So from the very beginning of uh, Bhikkhu Analyo's, uh, one of his two books on the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutra on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Contemplate the body by establishing mindfulness. You may remember uh, this from George's talk. Contemplate the body by establishing mindfulness, diligently, energetic, rightly knowing, and rightly mindful overcoming desires and discontent in the world in the same way feelings that's the second foundation of mindfulness mind that's the third and dharma is the fourth this is called having oneself an island by relying on oneself having the dharma as an island by relying on the dharma in this context the dharma translates as truth the way things are having no other island and no other reliance. So, you know, mapping this against, uh, you know, more modern or clinical language, um, this is sort of the, the ultimate self-regulation. This is sort of a, a profound uh, inner or inward secure base. This practice uh, is not in for most of us, should not exclude the important task of uh, relational work and relational mindfulness and relationship building and co-regulation. And at the same time, this island is a profound inner capacity for self-regulation, for being okay. So this is a this is a self assuredness that we develop. It's a self-assuredness that we develop based less on a clear sense of our personality, but more on the impersonality and impermanence of it. So we become an island. This is not an island. This is not a dismissive island. This is not a, I don't want to be with people. It's not an I don't like people. 
It's not a, I'm, I, I can't commit to people. It's rather um, I've learned to take care of myself and therefore I can tolerate uh, and want to be uh, in relationship. I want to be with people. I can be with myself. I know how to do that. And so I don't have to safeguard and protect. I can be vulnerable, exposed, connected. I can contact. I can be with my life, uh, other people, the whole world. Uh, other people, our life, our whole world are, are less intimidating. Uh, we are not any longer inferior, incapable. Because we're functioning from a place of knowing. We're beginning to understand how things work. So we take life less personally. We create less of a self, in a sense. Okay. Now we also, and this is the second way uh, that we become more skillful, we, we, we make less of a self of others. We talk so much about non-identification. We talk so much about um, the possibility of freeing ourselves you know, with this hard to understand language of, of not self. It's important and it's appropriate because the degree to which we can do that, I think there's a natural spillover into how we perceive and see other people, but we don't, we don't always talk about it. But we also don't make a self of other people. So the entire world, in a sense, is more, is more peaceful, it's more agreeable. We are not affronted by others, but rather simply by a set of complex or dynamic conditions that um, we're inevitably coming in contact with. That's just how it is. This is so important, right? It's so important that we take our insight and understanding with regard to how our own mind works and we apply it to everybody, to, to all situations. So in a sense, people aren't out to get us. In a sense, people aren't um, we, we can see, we can see in other people's hostility, we can see in their difficulty in being kind, we can see in their irrational behavior. We can see in the way they don't meet our needs or cause discomfort for us or others. We can see their confusion. We can see their avidya. We can understand that they're suffering, that they don't see clearly. They don't understand how things work. You know if you do this practice that when you're suffering or when you're confused, when you are far distant from your capacity uh, for or to be regulated, to know the right thing to do, but sometimes your actions are hurtful. Okay. And you're almost never trying to hurt somebody else. This is just simply um, 
unskillful. You're just unskillful in the moment. And sometimes, and this is this is really hard to be honest about. Sometimes there is ill ill will. This is what this is. This is in the Buddha's teachings. Right? Sometimes you know it's. Sometimes the mind actually thinks, if we really scold someone or point out what they did wrong, that we actually think it will make us feel better. So we actually, we are directing this or punishing action or language toward others sometimes. But really, we could even see that as emerging out of our own avidya or confusion or suffering or pain, why would we do something like that? We're just confused. There's some aspect of our being and psychology that thinks it will make us feel better. So we're all doing that sometimes. So that's sort of the, the tragedy of the human situation, is that we're all just confused. And the good news and the optimism built into the whole system is um, maybe we can change it. It's, 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 it's actually fairly simple. I, I think one of the reasons why uh, we don't see as much change as we, much, we, we might like is um, the conditions aren't right, the resources aren't available perhaps, or the interest is not there yet for enough people to do the work. But if you do the work, you'll see change in yourself and in your own life. And then it's not theoretical, it's not good philosophy, it's not a thought project, it's not interesting in that way. It's not cool. We don't do it because it's cool. We don't do it because um, our friends are doing it. It's actually making a difference. We do it because we have to. At a certain point, we just take responsibility and when we start to experience the world differently, we have great faith. Faith is natural. Um, in this case, uh, faith referring to uh, seeing, connecting with, believing in the inherent, the inherent workability of life. Um, and we start to trust it. We start to trust ourselves and other human beings more. This comes through direct experience. It actually the faith doesn't get very strong if we don't experience it. <coughs> so wisdom and kindness naturally merge. Wisdom and kindness naturally merge. Those are the two practices we're doing on this retreat, wis wisdom and kindness. They naturally come together. So it makes good sense that we would um, create a form to practice both, to draw both out, and yet um, one comes out of the other. At least I think kindness comes out of wisdom. From the Samyutta Nikaya collection of the Pali Suttas, a mind well cultivated in benevolence is supreme in beauty. A mind well cultivated in benevolence is supreme in beauty.
So we're cultivating a beautiful mind. I love that image. How badly do you want that? See, until we speak and act, it's invisible. No one looks at you twice at the beach for having a beautiful mind. (laughs) And if you're mostly interested in a beautiful mind, you can actually go to the beach the way you look right now. You can just, you can just go everywhere, and you can just be yourself. You can expose yourself to the world. So what does this have to do with Vedana? The second foundation of mindfulness, which George introduced this morning that will We'll really spend a good full day focusing on, and as you'll see in the way we unpack the instructions and talk more about um, the way we can pay attention to and note uh, a variety of experience at once. You see that we're, we're paying attention to Vedana all week. It's, it's I think one of the most important places to shine the light of mindfulness on. In a sense, the first foundation of mindfulness, though, a location for important insight, particularly insight into the three marks of existence, the three characteristics, uh, dukkha, uh, anatta, not-self, and anicca, impermanence. We feel at the beginning of practice, uh, focusing on the body, a sense of coming into the present moment, of developing sensory clarity, coming back to the present moment, coming back to the present moment, coming back to the present moment, coming back to the present moment. And as we do that, we see very naturally, we almost don't even have to try too hard, that again, simply, pleasant experiences happen. Simply, unpleasant experiences happen. And sometimes, experiences that don't distinctly present as pleasant or unpleasant uh, occur. The mind is not getting pulled so dramatically into pleasant and unpleasant, and we just call this neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Could this be true? Could this ancient tradition have identified in such concrete and simple terms that all experience falls into one of these three categories? And even if it were true, how on Buddha's earth could that be useful? (laughs) Are you kidding me? We might even look over it. Let's get something. Let's get to something interesting fast, like the third foundation of mindfulness, because my mind is interesting. <laughs> you should see the shit that happens in my mind. Wow. Uh,
But all experience, everything we're confronted with is, uh, is just downloaded into one of these three categories. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, everything. It's just um, mental and physical phenomena, life, things that are seen, heard, remembered, all things contact one of the sense organs and just like that pleasant unpleasant or neutral pleasant unpleasant or neutral so of course we 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 tend to want the uh, the pleasant experience and we tend to disregard or push away the unpleasant and and we tend to not pay attention really uh, to the neutral so why don't we know this why 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 don't we why why did we need why did we need the uh, the, the Buddha to, to say look this is happening you know why why weren't we why weren't we talking about this, um, you know, when we were 10 years old, riding our bike down the street with our friends, like, hey, how many neutral experiences do you have? <laughs> I overheard my parents at the, at the dinner table, they were having a big fight. They were talking about um, how the last week was mostly unpleasant experiences. <laughs> Actually, that's probably true. We probably did overhear that. <laughs> We're, we're not seeing experience through the lens or the pasture of the, through the lens of the, of the second foundation of mindfulness. We're not actually hanging out in that field or pasture. Because what happens is when uh, the organism is confronted with pleasant, un- unpleasant, and neutral, just like that, we're swimming in a complicated uh, experience of mind, which we describe through the lens of the third foundation of mindfulness. Um, we just blast through uh, Vedana. Uh, we might not even, and are often not even aware of the fact that it's happening. And so the, the Buddha, I think, is doing something brilliant. He's saying, let's slow things down. Let's slow things down and let's look and let's watch and let's see what's happening here. And what we come to find out is that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are all value neutral. They're all value neutral, uh, meaning that neither is better than the other. Neither is more useful. So there's the big secret. Pleasant is actually not more useful. Why is it perceived as more useful? Because you're suffering. It's so simple. Why do we chase pleasant? Because suffering is an inherent part of life. It's so simple. And when we see it that way, again, we can take all the little mistakes along the way less personally. So something happens, the teaching of the 
Four Noble Truths tell us uh, at the Second Noble Truth that there's tanha in Pali, T-A-N-H-A, tanha. Something happens. Well, what happens uh, happens somewhere between the second and third foundation of mindfulness, which we'll talk we'll talk more about the third foundation of mindfulness tomorrow. Well guess what? What happens is also pretty simple. And I've really already said it. The immediate response or reaction to pleasant is, I want it. I want more. The basic response to unpleasant is, I don't want it. I want it to go away. And the basic response or reaction to neutral is uh, discursive thinking, distraction. I think Analio, Biko Analio, I think he calls it diluted distraction. So there we are, right away, so quickly, this tug of war between experience, between competing thoughts and emotions, trying to make sense of what this person said or did to me. Wanting and not wanting, it's unsettling, isn't it? You can feel it. You can feel uh, literally like there's a a bunch of ping ping pong balls in your mind. Literally, you can feel that. You can see it happening. And if you train yourself somatically, you can feel the nervous system agitated. You can, you, can, you, can, you can feel this happening to yourself. So, if all of these experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, are value, are value neutral, And if responding to them from the place of aversion and grasping creates suffering, why do we keep doing it? We'd actually, it's too, we don't, we don't totally believe yet. We don't actually, we don't believe that it's real, in a sense. Because once we see it, once we see it again, and once we see it again and again, there's a turning point. There is a turning point. And we meet unpleasant experience differently. We just say, we, we just, there's a point in time where you just say, I'm done. I don't need to make this go away. And there's a turning point. And when when things are going well, we've seen so many times, so many times, there's not a calculator that goes high enough. This is not going to last. How many times do you have to see that? But then when something really good happens that you've really wanted, like the relationship you've been working to find for nine years, or the health 
that you've long been seeking. The job, you finally paid off your debt. <clears throat> you know, this, whatever this is for you, no matter how much insight, it's almost like, okay, but this, I deserve to hold on to forever. So we give that up. Not because we're pessimistic, but because we're becoming wise and we want something even bigger than all of that. We want, we want contentment. We know that things are going to continue to change, that conditions are unpredictable. And we want to become a, um, a master of our universe. Uh, we want to be content. We want to be happy. So the relationship between the second foundation of mindfulness and the third foundation of mindfulness, again, is simply that we add. We add. We add not wanting to unpleasant experience. We add wanting to pleasant experience. And we add this kind of diluted distraction, um, this kind of spinning out and thinking mind to neutral. So we're adding something. How do, we, how do we talk about this? How do we understand this? We're departing from the present moment. That's what tanha is. It's a departure from the present moment. Uh, facing um, bodily sensation, thoughts, memories, moods, emotions, with the exception of the uh, particularly destabilizing traumatic images uh, in memories which might be very useful to step away from uh, until conditions are more suitable to engage them. With that exception, once we just be, learn to be with the experience we're having without needing it to go away and without trying to make something else happen, something changes. In these moments between pushing and pulling at experience, we are free. We are completely, utterly free. But we need to be able to stay here in this thought, in this sensation. We need to be able to stay with this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience until it changes. This tanha is... Uh, translated literally as thirst. This is a, uh, we could say, a thirst to become. It's a thirst to become something, someone, somebody, some other experience than the one we're having. And it's a thirst to not become, to do away with, ultimately to be done with all this suffering. So I think of the the four foundations as uh, four contemplations. They're the four uh, places or ways that we can contemplate the nature of suffering and the reality of freedom and liberation. Contemplation of uh, Vedana or feelings 
is to understand the aspect of personal experience that can lead to craving in the arising of dukkha, suffering. Contemplation of Vedana is to understand the aspect of personal experience that can lead to craving in the arising of dukkha, suffering, what we're trying to escape. Insight into dukkha, insight into dukkha, reveals what is skillful and wise and what is unskillful. Simply, if we try to make things happen, if we try to make things happen and hold on to the present, craving, desire, attachment, greed, clinging, we suffer. If we try to push away experience, aversion, resistance, hatred, we suffer. So on the meditation cushion, This is happening all the time. I, two days ago, I was sitting up here, and I don't know if George introduced the session or I did. It doesn't matter. I was sitting, I was doing my own practice, and I was uh, sort of mildly ag- mildly agitated by um, a conversation that I had recently had, and I had come back in memory. You know, and I held a view that the implications of that conversation could impact our relationship. It was a very meaningful relationship. And it, it, it seemed important that I understand what happened in the conversation. Um, you know, was the other person at fault? Could I point out to them in some way uh, their behavior? Did I need to take responsibility for an oversight on my part? Did I need to sort of just... Maybe no conversation was necessary. I just need to see my role in it uh, because I wanted the I wanted the outcome to be good. I, I wanted uh, I wanted a good, functioning, healthy, uh, safe, caring you know relationship with this person, and uh, I, my my mind really got got quite caught up. I, and you know I had that sense of a like I can't figure this out. We say my mind is in a knot. I really couldn't figure it out and. I noticed that the body was really tight, the body was really contracted. Um, I, was, I was pulling my belly in, like really, really, really far. And my breathing, like I was, I was holding my breathing. To, and you wouldn't have known this, I don't think if you were looking at me, but um, it's quite a, quite a significant response. And, you know, if I just look at the whole situation, I can just see dukkha, suffering, you know. Look at, look at what I'm doing. And it's not that we don't uh, reflect and think and talk to, to people about events and conversations in our life and try to understand them. We do do that. That's very useful. But it's, it's, it's not at all insight meditation. That's not the kind of insight we're talking about, actually. It's not about connecting those kinds of dots. 
So I, I, I saw it as, I just saw suffering, and I just, I noted it. Sometimes I just, I'll use dukkha as a label, or note as a dukkha. You know, there it is. I see it again. Um, and right away, I saw how much thought I was given to the situation and how it wasn't helping. I just didn't have the information or the time wasn't right. I just didn't have what I needed to, to make sense of that prior conversation. And I was, I was really driving myself crazy and I was suffering a lot. And there was no good information coming from it that would actually benefit my friend or me or our relationship. And so I just stopped. I, I, I just stopped thinking about it. And I could feel the, the belly move out away from the spine. I felt my, my shoulders drop. And I just, the, 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 the relative or modest insight was that I don't need to think about this now, that I, maybe that I can't even come up with the answer I want in this way. And, and the hostility that I felt toward the, the person and the confusion about whether I had done something wrong or not, it just kind of, you know, just once I stopped uh, feeding it, it just went away. And, I, you know, in, in daily life, I often have a, you know, the very, a very similar experience with my, I have an immune condition that has all sorts of diagnoses. I don't know if any of them are right, and some doctors aren't willing to give it a name because they're confused as to what it is and I'm often sick and what happens is when I when I start to get sick I get scared um, because when I get really sick I can't function very well and I can't I can't get done what I would like to get done and I have to put my to-do list aside and you know if I'm in a retreat context where uh, no matter what I have to just show up and do my work um, you know, I just know that it's going to be really painful for me, and so I get scared. And, um, I get in this sort of inner battle, and I'm, I'm pushing it. The aversion is just so strong. It's so strong. And it, and it sneaks up on me almost every time I get sick, you know. Um, and, you know, I, and sometimes I do better with it than others, but uh, the degree to which I can uh, do good, unpleasant this this is I don't enjoy this this is not preferred this is uncomfortable here it is again this makes me sad but it's my truth it's what's real on a relative level this is actually this is happening to my mind and my body at this moment it's not passing it's it's just here this is what's happening and that changes something. In both of these examples, um, clearly knowing um, unpleasant Here's what I want to say about this. If we're willing to be with our experience, even that which is unpleasant, we see something important, which is that it's changing. The severity is increasing, decreasing. The location is shifting to the left, shifting to the right, whether we identify it as unpleasant in the mind or body. 
sometimes there feels like there's a <coughs> fluidity. Um, and then every now and again, uh, people will report that this is true even for chronic illness. Every now and again, no pain. No pain. So this is this is one of the this is one of the great uh, mysteries of contemplative practice, uh, particularly uh, one of the great functionalities of mindfulness is that change is created by not trying to change anything. That, that change occurs by being with. It's easy to understand how counterintuitive that is and how we would push back against that simple truth. But the more we sit, the more we see the change through this work happens by being with, not through our usual and conventional means of change. And when we're looking very closely, there's nothing static about experience. It's ebbing and flowing, increasing, decreasing. And every now and again, even in really difficult situations, there's these little gaps. There's these little gaps. There's no suffering. Gone. There are these moments. And then we start to notice that the more, and, and that creates some leverage. And the mind starts to go, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to fight this anymore. And so there it is, another gap. Well, wait a minute, that's interesting. And so these gaps are punctuating our suffering, right? And we start to notice that the difficulty, pain, seems to be colorizing with a non-resistance, which is colorizing with an underlying sense that things are okay. Things are not how I want them, and they're okay. Wow. So there's more trust, there's more insight, there's more capacity. And so these gaps that are occasionally punctuating our suffering, they become a little bit more frequent. They start to move closer together experientially. And then all of a sudden, two gaps come together, and it's a pretty big space. I'm like, wow, that was a nice, that was a nice stretch of peace. And then these gaps start to move closer together, and there's an even bigger space. Right? And then ultimately we learn to put ourselves in that space, or we let the space grow and grow and grow, and we have this big space, and we put our life in it, we put our suffering in a big space. And we let the pain and the, we let the pleasure just come and go and sort of move itself around the big space. I have a, a friend who's a, a Tibetan Lama. We teach two or three retreats together a year, and we um, have an in, in-person meeting together, usually a couple times a month. And he talked about his experience on his formal training in his three-month retreat, and he said, he said they, you know, they just worked us so hard. They just, the conditions were just so hard. You know, we couldn't sleep, and the ordeals they asked us to um, uh, learn how to, you know, endure were just, it was just so much that um, I just learned to put space around it. 
I just learned to put space around it. So this large space that we we create through practice, it begins to hold all of our experience, if you will, um, more amicably, curiously, less personally. So uh, to close, what I'm what I'm saying is that, and this brings us around to the beginning of my my talk that through mindfulness practice, through insight or vipassana, the four foundations of mindfulness, you know, essentially we have, uh, we have the ability to test, we have the ability to test our own perceptions. This is, what, this is what mindfulness is. We have the ability to test our own perceptions. And that investigation, that investigation is uh, fundamentally a testing of the solidity of the self, of the experience of me or I who suffers. And once we see the impermanence, once we see that things are changing, um, we inevitably see the not-self nature of me or I. We see it actually in the second foundation of mindfulness. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes neutral. Everything, everything in the tradition, and I beg of you to test this, everything that passes through the field of awareness cannot be traced back to a solid, independent anything. <laughs>